Welcome to the 500th Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Wow, 500. I kind of can't believe that. This week, artists Nancy Grossman and Stacey Lynn Waddell. Grossman is featured in Nasher Mixtape, a series of micro-exhibitions at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through September 26th. She's also in Vibrant, Artists Engage with Color, at the Weatherspoon Art Museum at the University of North Carolina Greensboro through June 26th. Grossman's leather-wrapped wooden sculptures are among the most iconic works of 20th century art, but are far from her only engagements with the figure. Grossman started her career by painting the female figure, went on to collages built from leather and other found material, to dyed paper collages of the human figure, and plenty more. The Tang Museum at Skidmore College presented a retrospective of her work in 2012. I'll introduce Waddell before the second segment. If you enjoy the show, give us a 500th episode present by telling a friend about the program and by giving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks very much. Nancy Grossman, after the break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus Y.L. Shockey, highlighting a film from his ambitious trilogy Cabaret Crusades, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. In this exhibition, as with much of his work, Shockey explores the ambiguities between history and myth in a multimedia presentation in order to challenge the authority of history. At The Modern through July 25th. Information at themodern.org. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in LA 2020 Aversion in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer in the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Tebow are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Nancy Grossman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start in the early 1960s. So at this point, you're in your early 20s, and you're painting the figure, the female figure, uh, with bright natural color and verve and energy. I mean, this is, this is the early 1960s when painting is not necessarily the thing. What drew you to painting, and then what drew you to painting the figure specifically? It was that I used the figure metaphorically in those days, and it seemed like the everything of everything, that the figure was really important. And to me, painting was very personal. And I was giving myself permission and I was getting permission from, like, for instance, the people who were so important to me, 
when I was a young person, like when I, I, I went to, to school at Pratt, from Oneonta, it was, I didn't go with anything in mind except to get away from Oneonta. And I should jump in and note that Oneonta is the town in the western foothills of the Catskills in which you grew up, the same hometown as an artist I know a little something about named Carlton Watkins. And so Oneonta, Oneonta New, New, to New York City is, is over the mountains and down the Hudson. Yeah, about 250 miles away. In the days when I was there, I the only way to get to New York, I used to travel to New York with my father sometimes by train. It just seemed that the figure could contain all, all of the information and it could act out. Probably I was more totally immersed in my own body and my own... I was very physical. The, those early 60s paintings of, of the body you made quite often show the body under strain or under pressure or experiencing crisis, such as the fall from 1962. And, and that bodily experience of pressure and stress will remain in your work for quite a few decades. Do you remember maybe what... Maybe forever. Yeah, yeah, maybe forever. <laughs> Do you remember what brought you to it? Yes, I think my own sense for my physicality and my what I could put into words or what uh, appealed to me mentally, emotionally, were probably mythologies, all kinds of mythologies, starting with the Bible. But except I didn't, I didn't associate it with with feelings of religiosity so much as the human condition. You know, so my physical sense of reality was a struggle always. I had. Uh, probably was hyperactive. Nobody knew in those days that, that kids had attention deficit disorder or that they were, I believe me, I didn't need any sugar to go wild into the woods, you know, to run wild up and down the hills. I, I just, it was natural. So, and I was the oldest first child that, that they had, they had had a child before me. All of those things are really ultimately in your life important, but I just was a wild thing, you know, and a tomboy. And, you know, I felt you had to be really strong. And really, so that's the personal feeling. The things that I identified with and it seemed just right to me were probably Greek mythology. You know, after you started with painting and painting, especially the female figure in the early 1960s, you started making collages that often included leather and, and, and straps of brown leather. Are you kind of suggesting that or hinting that some of the forms and strappiness in those early leather-built collages may have been informed by all of those cattle entrails and innards you were? No, I think that, I think that, I was referring to the imagery of those paintings in the 60s. And my references very often were Greek mythology. And the idea of, of the human being being a fallen creature, you know, a disappointment, as it were, a whole combination. of Well, you know, that, that painting, if you, if you have a reproduction of that painting, The Fall, it was, oh, that was an important painting. So... Yeah, that looks like the cow's entrails, doesn't it? <laughs> it's it does, a human. It. I mean, it looks a little. There's a little bit of the of, of a figure on a cross. There's a little bit of a figure falling. There's a little bit of the green of the earth, the blue of the sky, the tealish blue yeah. of the sky. And and the painting was done 
very spontaneously too. It was a very spontaneous painting. So it was about who we really are and and what happens to us. You know? <laughs> well, it's timely too. I mean that that painting that painting is is from 1962, and by the middle of the decade, your work seems to me to be quite in dialogue with the emerging war in Vietnam. When did you become aware of America's escalation in Vietnam? And when did you start thinking to yourself, this thing needs to be in my work? I never thought that. I was just so, I was so immediate. Everything that happened was so immediate. In hindsight, is there a work or two that you look back on and think to yourself, oh yeah, Back back then, you know, my, my my engagement with the war is is in this work. The war was on the radio, on the news, on Pacifica Radio all day long in my studio. I was deeply involved with what was going on in the war. And I mean, I could barely breathe from it, you know. And Life magazine and the photographers from Life magazine were really important too. By the time Me Lai came along, I was you know, beside myself. I was very interested in what was going on. I don't know if that had to do with the school or the the kind of newspapers that kids read in those days, their weekly readers. Personally, the minute I became aware, it was always, I was always interested in all of these things. And so the Vietnam thing, I felt it very deeply and I had very strong feelings. And at the same time, the Attica prison riot that happened was very important. And the fact of, well, on the one hand, there was freedom to do everything that you did. You know, the physical world was was absolutely acrobatic, you know. And I guess some of the important ways that I made the figure were symbolic ways. They were not illustrations for stories of the Greek myths, but they, they grabbed me deeply. You know, the idea that you could be punished for giving fire to the world and you you could be tortured every day and then you your liver could grow back and then you could be attacked again and then or or in the case another punishment was that you had the sisyphean myth of you know doing the hard work and then the, by 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 evening it was undone and then so it was all of these things to me they they appeared in a very physical way and i felt free to make them very physical. It sounds like you're also drawing a connection, or were back then, between the way the American state controlled the bodies of the young men it sent into Vietnam and the way the state controlled the bodies of the men it imprisoned at Attica. Absolutely. I thought of it in the same way. I I really did. And I was very rebellious, too. And was, you know, they couldn't, I couldn't help but be punished all the time and very, you know, physically too. So there was a continuity between the inner and the outer and your feelings and the world. So I always was struck immediately. I didn't have to sign up for anything. In fact, it was probably impossible for me to sign up for something. You know, one of the things that you identified in an interview with Cindy Nemzer from, um, I think, 1973 was about how, in the context of these ideas, pressure, control, that leather came into the work 
brown leather because there were two associations that you thought about, aviators and football players. Those are pretty different references. Aviators in the context of late 60s America could could certainly be uh, informed by pilots in the in the in, in the war in Vietnam. But of course, football, you know, football has been for many decades um, a metaphor for American violence. Was one of the reasons you were drawn to leather as a material, initially brown leather, and as we'll talk about in a minute later, black leather, because of its metaphorical and uniform, I mean, clothing uniform relationship with violence? No, I never even thought of it as violence. I thought, I thought that leather as a material was just as good as paint. It was pliable and it was, you could use it to make form and it could be linear or it could be like a great surface. It could be a landscape. In fact, when you were talking about the 60s, when I would paint a woman, my idea about women had to do probably with my mother. And while my mother worked like a dog, <laughs> she she worked like a dog. When I think of her, I think that I always wanted to talk to her and she never had time. <laughs> and, but I think of her in bed. So my father was all gone already. He was He was already dressed and gone and working. But the woman never got a chance to, between the years that she was having babies and I would try to talk to her and she would be sleeping. And so there was her sleeping body and it looked like, it looked like a landscape to me. And it looked like Franklin Mountain in front of the farm. I made a lot of paintings that, you know, they seemed to become more abstract, but they were really landscapes. They were, they were really the mountain and the farm and the women lying down seemed to me, it sounds trite, but it was true that women became landscapes and men men were shooting into action, you know? In 1968, you started making the work for which you're best known and really some of the best known sculptures of, of post-war American art, head, heads. Yes, and that's what happened to me was that I had won the Guggenheim and I was making really exciting wall constructions. I really wanted to make sculpture because... In some ways, I'm so primitive that, you know, I, I met David Smith by accident. He would say, well, the sculpture still hadn't reached its kind of importance in the eyes of anybody who was saying anything about art. And it was European painting and, you know, French painting, and it was always painting, and it was always illusion. And David would say, grumpily, oh yeah, so-and-so said that sculpture is something you trip on as you're on your way to the world wall to see the paintings. And so it was something that was in the way and it was physical. When he got a kind of hoist that moved along the, the ceiling of his studio so that he could pick up heavy stuff and move it, wow, that was, I mean, I saw that, you know, and he had, he had a, an assistant who finished the welds, you know, he would begin a piece and very often he would begin it on the floor. And all of these ways of doing things were, they were influential and informative. But I wanted to make sculpture that was freestanding sculpture, but like my drawings were, like like the figure falling out of the, the heavens and falling on its head, no less, and being out of balance with everything and being... Well, it seemed to me that the figure was the thing. So I never got beyond the body, really. 
So the body lying down is a landscape to me, and the, and the body standing up is a pole, and we can go from there, and all the things that I've ever done are just related to that movement that I developed that became, I realized in retrospect, very personal kind of movement with the movements that I myself was capable of making and did make in space. Myself in space, the feats of strength and bravery that me and my cousins indulged in were like, how deep a bite mark can you make in this piece of aluminum we found? You know, the figure used metaphorically in, in those ways came from all of that different kind of thinking and imagery. And then when you saw Vietnam and you saw these people with their hands tied behind their backs and their elbows tied together and and they were, nobody ever talked about their food. They were so other to the American. It was never, never a word about. Well, let's, let's go back to 68 when you are moving toward making these heads. Yes, well, I didn't move toward... I had a period where I was out of my studio. I locked myself out of my studio because I couldn't... When I when the Guggenheim finished, I went back and I said, I would like to work so well as if anyone cared. But it was like the religion. I thought they cared. But so I'm working so well and, and who knows what's going to happen. And I'd like to have an extension of my Guggenheim. So we don't give extensions. <laughs> so that was... When I went back into the studio, it simply didn't make sense to me. I had been, I went out and and got myself some children's books to do. And I figured I can draw. I draw pictures. That's how come I went to Pratt. Well, I can make pictures. I Maybe, who knows, maybe I could make pictures for books. I don't know. I never did take a, an illustration course where you made pictures for books. And that was a project that they gave to the students. And I never did it because I was so resistant. Well, a couple of years ago, you told Yvonne Rainer that you taught yourself sculpture. As people may or may not know, underneath the leather of your hoods are, are wooden sculptures that, that you carved. So how did you, how, how did you go about teaching yourself sculpture? Wow. And the wood that was available was wood from the street. All kinds of different wood. I would glue it together. And at some point, they were like, 10 by 12s and 12 by 12 beams that had been used in construction and now were thrown into a muddy field in in Brooklyn, somewhere way out in Brooklyn. And I got these these things that looked like trees. Otherwise, so I I would glue and piece things together. And sometimes in the in the early, I didn't even think of them as sculptures. I thought I wanted to make a thing. That was it make a thing. So I would, I didn't even have such good glue in those days. I would find a way to, to make something, I'd wire it together. I, I, I saw a very early sculpture from the sixties that I had made in order to balance it. It was standing up. And in order to balance it, I tied bricks with, <laughs> to the back of it, <laughs> to the bottom and the, and the back. So you really did make up everything as you went along in terms yeah, of figuring out exactly. So did you have an idea that you were working toward human heads? No, no. What what happened? It, it was a very, it was a very distinct break in my work. So what happened is that the agent, when the agent found out that I had a Guggenheim, she said, "This is it. Enough for you." 
we're not going to invest any of our time in you. They didn't say it like that, but they never got me any work. So when the Guggenheim was over, I said, gee, it's been months and I, I have to, you know, pay my rent. And, oh, they're just not so much work now. They were very subtle about it. Like, they weren't going to give me any work. They didn't, they saw that I really wanted to do my art. And that was off limits. It, you can't believe the the separation between the way that artists were received and they weren't interested in art. They really weren't. Well, when I went back into the studio, none of the work that I had been making made sense to me. And I was so in such despair. So now you have the money to buy time in your studio and you don't even recognize what you were doing. And I didn't feel that way from being a noisy, active person to trying the discipline. The thing about being all over the place is that the opposite kind of focus, intense focus is the other side of that coin. And I was intensely focused on these children's books. And so I was drawing for nine whole months and I was isolated in the, in the living space, practically tied myself to a table where I was doing work. Well, where did I get this idea finally? And, I, and that's probably when I began to pay really, really, really close attention to the Vietnam War. I used to go get papers from, they, they were very inexpensive in those days. They had papers from Boston, the Boston Globe, New York, Washington, Boston. During the Vietnam I, I War and during that time, I was absolutely all ears because when I was drawing these children's books, know I mean I was just focused 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 and then what happened what happened is that I I just gave it up I began crying and so Anita said what's going on with you and and I said I I just don't get it I don't get my work said well you've been drawing for nine months straight you know why don't you just why don't you just draw what you feel why don't you just draw so I began to draw how I felt and I felt like I was locked up in my head and nothing existed. I really, I stopped dancing. Stopped, I stopped seeing my boyfriends and, you know, <clears throat> I stopped going to bed with with my buddies, you know, with my, my friends. I, I, I wasn't involved with women in, in those days at all. But, you know, I had just put myself into deep stir, <laughs> you know. I was locked. I locked myself up to do that work. And the head was the first thing that I... I just continued to draw with my pen and and it was a head and it was a head that felt like it couldn't go anywhere and everything was locked in the head. All of the motion, all of the, not just the cares and woes, but every possibility of, of action was locked in the head. And I was angry and I felt angry and I always did my whole life and I had plenty to be angry about. So, but there was no way to express it. So, I mean, it sounds like very primitive, but I wanted to tie up the head, lace it up. It couldn't. It couldn't complain. It couldn't yell. It couldn't curse. It couldn't. It couldn't bang on the walls. It had no arms, no legs, and it was the most powerful. It was ultimately the ultimate thing was the head, and and I've thought that my whole life since that time. I've been expressing myself on my head since then, really. And all things begin and end with the head. Your, you know, your dreams, your, your rage. You, you know, 
if you have a tool, if you have guns like in this country, somebody gets shot every day. Everybody's shooting everybody because they, they have a gun. When I made these drawings, I made another one and then another one and then another one. And I didn't consult with or show them to my, my lost mate, Anita, until there were several, you know, and she didn't say anything. She was really a good friend and a good artist too, a great artist and a smart woman. I just kept making them until I wanted them to be to be more real. And that's when I decided I wanted to make them more real. Yes, they were self-portraits of how I felt. And I felt very secretive about them, too. That was like, oh, please, don't let on that this is, don't let on anything. I didn't show them to anybody at all. And I had been showing with a, I didn't want, I didn't even know if it was art, but I wanted to make the, these, but it was the way that I felt how things were. I was making one head after the other, after the other. Well, how did I make them? I first, I I knew I wanted to make a physical thing that was at least life size. And I remember I had this Canadian uh, friend. Well, both Anita and I knew this woman named Selma Brody who came from Canada, and she had gone to Pratt. Didn't ever went to Pratt, but I did. And she had taken industrial design. And I figured that if there was a material that you could make something that was physical, I didn't care what it was. You know, it wasn't clay because clay, I had learned about clay when I was in high school. So I knew that it couldn't be clay because I, whatever it was that I was making had to be flexible enough to be taken apart the way that you erase a drawing. You say, no, that's, no, I want it to be this way or paint over painting or scrape off what you did with the paint and, and, and make another thing that was more right. And so these things didn't develop. They were contained. I mean, it's just as primitive as you can be. I think Irving Penn took some pictures for one of the fashion magazines. I didn't subscribe to magazines, but I saw this one. Maybe there was one subscription other than Life magazine. Maybe... I saw this on a newsstand. He had taken pictures of belts, I think. In the picture, there were pictures of Africans, and they had belts around their waist, belts around their legs, belts around. They, If you have a belt, where do you put it? Around anything that it will go around. And maybe that was some way that I thought of holding in all of these things that were happening in your head. All the landscapes, everything, had, all the feelings, all the the murderousness, all the the sorrow, all of it had to be locked in. All the things you want to scream, you know, what do you mean napalming children? What do you mean napalming jungles? What, you know, what are you doing? What I had to contain it, and that's where I came to the head. And I felt that that the head was the thing, and and it is the thing. And it's not your muscles weren't located in your your back or your arms or your legs or your, you know, your womb or your, your testicles or your vagina or, you know, your teeth. I mean, even the things that, so they became all metaphorical and they became locked in the head. So the head became everything. And I wanted to close it up. I wanted to make it look so fierce that you were afraid of it, but really disarm it, make it so it could, it couldn't harm you, but it was really, it was really very much about myself. I think I was so pent up 
And so somewhere in there, somewhere in there, you had remembered or had access to that wood you had found in Brooklyn from from construction sites. When I decided I wanted to make sculpture, I thought I thought there was a magical material. Like I thought there was something that didn't have to be cast, that wasn't poisonous. Like remember Robert Mallory? He he actually poisoned himself, and so did many other artists using resins. So Selma told me about resins and that wasn't okay with me because you couldn't, you had to plan for it. You had to, and it seemed like people made plans for sculpture. I wasn't, that was too slow for me. You know, I had to be on the thing making it. So wood was the only thing that was, you could nail something to it, screw something to it. You could unscrew it. You could even break it apart. You could glue it. You could change it. You could reconfigure it <laughs> I think of David Smith because <laughs> he said people complain that my sculptures are two-sided or <laughs> one-sided <laughs> and that sculpture should move around in space oh poo you know <laughs> so many things that were physical and aesthetic at the same time were in the air and they were in the general air they were in my life air <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah look at that it has a back it has a front oh yeah you know it's very personal, but I don't know how old I was when the Studebakers came into vogue, but I was very disturbed by them because you couldn't tell if they were going away from you or towards you because the was designed like the front. You know, <laughs> I was very upset about that. <laughs> Probably I'm so primitive that that's why I, I used So then you are beginning to work on a piece that shows, you know, about two-thirds of, of a male body, you know, the torso, its head, um, all the way down to about halfway through the high, through the thigh. It's larger than life size, and it's a work that's now at the Israel Museum. And so this was a work that took you a full year to make, as I understand. Why did you decide to go from heads to tackling more of the body, as it were? So this figure was basically like the head, when I had had a couple of successful exhibitions and I really loved leather and I wanted to get a pair of leather jeans. And Anita said to me, I, so I talked with her about it. I said, you know, I wish I, she said, well, you made the money. You do what you want with it. You can buy leather jeans. So, So I did. I didn't think of it beforehand. In fact, I was going to Hard times emotionally. I went to see a psychiatrist. At some point, I showed him that sculpture or picture. Of, he said, well, he said a couple of things that I realized were true. I was so happy about these jeans. And he said, well, what's the matter? Isn't your skin thick enough? Isn't one skin safe enough and protective enough? <laughs> and I see that it was the same the same thing. I, I used all of that wood uh, for that, that figure was found and glued together with with PC7 epoxy, which was fantastic. You could call, I used to buy it by the court. And if it wasn't tall enough, well, those arms, I caught them separately at the elbow. And then I, I used metal rods. I put, you know, I made it so that it was, there was no plan. The originality of the joinings and the, and the particularities of the sculpture were, I mean, no two were the same. Uh, to me, it was like a separate problem every time I, I came to it. The zippers I used, like you would use lines that you would make with, they were linear 
they made your eye move around the sculpture the way you wanted it to. The muscularity of it, the threateningness of it was kept in place. So I didn't think to make something like that. Did, did you think of that sculpture as being male or female? Oh, I wanted it to be devastatingly male, but it's, but it turns out that my work taught me always, my work taught me that there is no such thing as, as male or female, really. The luxuriousness of it is male and female, but, you know, I, I meant it to be male, I thought, but it's actually, it has all the qualities of, of any powerful figure, whether it be male or female. The head sculptures were misinterpreted right away. And I didn't even know when I was making those head sculptures and when I had made several of them and enough of them so that I surrounded myself with them. And I was as compulsive and and maniacal about making them and making them all different. And I couldn't afford to buy leather. I, I mean, leather straps and these things. I had to make them from hides which you could get right up the street at that point on spring street it was lined with stores that had hides there was a guy who was he was a polish jew i I realized and he i was so excited about these little pieces of leather he had hanging around and and he didn't even speak english that well but he said to me i have something to show you and he took these gnarly things out and i said well what are they he said the turtle skins I said, what? And he said to me, I mean, it was indelibly imprinted. Anything that has a skin can be, can be tanned. I, I thought about the Nazis, and um, it turns out that there were pockets of people who had managed to, to get away, who were living in upstate New York, who, were Europe, who would have been gassed. And so I knew about that only sideways, you know, so all of these things were happening simultaneously in my experience. So the thing about canning somebody, you know, or needing another skin for safety and and security, or the other thing that that the psychiatrist said to me when I did show him a picture of, of this sculpture, whoa, if he's helping you to keep the door shut. I wonder what's on the other side of the wall. I wonder who's on the other side of the the door if he's the guy who's saving you from from it. I thought about that many years, and it's really true. How did I come to make this? uh, this, It's not even muscle man. It's not even... I mean, how did I come to make this threatening, gigantic figure that looks like it would explode? So when people said... Oh, S and M. It took me not even years to digest that. It was so upsetting to me. So you had made collage and assemblage early in your career, and in the mid nineteen seventies, uh, it comes back, especially in a powerfully contorting figural collage called "Twisting Column Figure" from nineteen seventy six. It's now at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. So both the 1971 leather-bound work at the Israel Museum that we talked about a moment ago and this one, you know, recall art historical standards, poses that are art historical standards. Were you looking at or studying classical sculpture and, and classical poses? No. 
In fact, the twisting column figure was after the fact. I, when I began making these figurative collages, it was after I began using the, the figure and the, the heads. You know, I, you've heard abstract expressionists complain to each other that they were like secretly being figurative. Like people would talk about decoding and say, oh, he's too figurative. You know what I mean? And the things that were abstract were figurative as well. Because I think you don't, I think that humans have bodies and they don't get away from it. The references are to the world and the body and to the movement that we can make. As we transition toward the heads a little more directly, I've struck by how in your work of this period, your figures are either always male or they're always meant to read as male. When I made the heads, you mean? Well, but also in this collage work of the early 70s. That came after I began doing the heads. I began the heads in the last years of the 60s. Yeah, 68, I think. I mean, when you begin work, it has a life of its own and it develops its own story. All of my figures, look at the twisting column figure. If you see it, it looks male, but it's also female. And even the large sculpture is, I'm not sneaking anything in. I had to realize afterward that that's exactly, in some way, in some way, all of your figures are self-portraits. The muscularity of it, it's not a superficial statement. It's part of the structure of it. And so it's like a kinetically, I made the figures that I was kinetically, you know, myself. And I'm not interested in in primary narcissism, otherwise I'd be an actress. And I wasn't interested in being seen, but my own kinetic and muscular body was, it had no size, it had no sex, even though it had every sex and it had every size. Let me pivot us back to the heads. When you were making the heads, did you think of them as as having a gender? So I made a metaphor for how I, I was, and I was the head. I felt that I was all genders, and I always do, you know, I always do. I I sense how people are. Sometimes you can be, you know, the idea of gender being constructed or learned came very late in, I was not only a grown-up, but an adult, a very adult, when when the whole idea that you were constructing gender became uh, verbal, it was all there, (laughs) and so I guess I've always been that way. It's not acceptable, I guess. No, I think it's plenty. I think it's plenty acceptable. I think it's it's just that I think people have always looked at them and assumed and, you know, and read gender into them. You know, you when we think of the heads, we think of them, well, many of them, of course, are wood covered covered by leather. You also made heads in aluminum and bronze. What about making heads in aluminum and bronze was interesting? They were always like afterthoughts. I, I wanted I wanted to weld earlier when I made those wall pieces, but when I made the the, the bronze heads, they were not in a way. Both of them, in fact, were after a head that I made translated into bronze. The bronze with the gun head was never covered. I I plan to. Leather is my material of choice because it was, it was pliable and it was skin and it was it meant something metaphorically and physically. I could work with it 
and I identified with it. But so I had carved this wooden head, and then I had bought myself some models of guns, and then I took a piece of, I mean, really, it was the kind of wood that they make floors and telephone poles out of, really. And I I sawed a wedge from the wood, and then I I cast the the... The, the gun in two parts, and then I glued it together so that it was it was a, a wedge, a gun that was a wedge, so that I could fit it into the, the head somehow. I I didn't have any ways to work these things out. When I decided to make heads that had teeth, I had no idea how you would do that. I, I knew a dentist. I said, where do you get these models of teeth that you have? Oh, he told me, he gave me the name of a company, and I went there. <laughs> And I said, I was like one of these, one of those. And they cost a lot of money, but, you know, for me at the time. But they said, well, we can't. Some of them had crooked teeth because, well, that's what I wanted. Well, you can't have it because you're not a dentist. I'm interested because I'm an artist. Well, we can't sell that to you. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't. So I had this this plastic model of teeth. I had a block of wood, so I split it, you know, like you would with an axe. And then I cut the place in one half of the wood and the other half of the wood so that I could fit these teeth in it. Then I made a hole in the front to see where would the mouth be? Well, where could I locate? Well, would it be smiling? Would it, it's just a square block of wood. And when I looked through the hole that I made in the front and saw the teeth, <laughs> I, I got as much information as I needed. I knew what I was going to do then. <laughs> Let me, you know, you raised guns a second ago. Guns start coming into your work right around 1970, and they stay in it into the 1990s, often often with heads, but sometimes with more of the torso. Why did guns come into the work, what, and, and then why did they stay in the work? It was, again, it was the physical and the kinetic. When I was a kid on the farm, they were always loaded twenty twos in the house. No, the kids didn't touch the guns, really, but... I remember having to run to the house. It must have been, oh, it must have been a quarter of a mile because one of the dogs that, there was a whole gang of dogs, wild ones, feral ones. We were cutting with a tractor, I think. So one of the dogs was chasing, they liked to chase cars in the, in the road. He got his legs cut off. One of my cousins ran the quarter of a mile all the way down to the house. They said, get the 22, get the 22. They had to shoot the dog, and I was standing there, and my cousins were standing there in the hayfield, and the dog was, you know, in agony, and it, it, it was in shock, and then they, they got the gun, and they shot it. Well, so we were interested in guns. I said, well, I'll let you shoot. Then they had some pistols, and so they said, this is too hard for you. You can't do it because... The gun will kick back. It will knock you over. The experience of guns and even pistols were, it was very much related to the body too. And it was, I did shoot the gun and it did almost knock me over. I never thought I could shoot guns and I wasn't really that interested in guns at all. But they were an extension of your body and they were murderous. And so the use of the guns in this in this way to, to symbolize some murderous thing that humans do was related to what you could say to somebody to just kill them. You just knew the right thing 
to say to murder them, and I mean murder. Let me let me go ba- let me go back for a quick second to something you you said a moment ago about guns and violence. It occurs to me that guns come into your work during the Vietnam War and we, we you know, and, and stay in it for a while, and they come back in 1991, which is the year the United States went to war in in the Persian Gulf in in Iraq and Kuwait. Were you were you conscious of bringing the guns back into the work as a response to another American foreign war? I was unconscious of it, but it was there, and that's what was happening. When you think of it, when we think of ourselves as Americans, and that people are armed, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Your innards they take the punishment and the and the trauma of what happens. And if you internalize it, you can then externalize it. The inside was always the outside, becoming the inside, becoming the outside. So gender, male, female, wars, guns, yelling at somebody, not just in an argument, but devastating insight into how they're made, what they care about, how you can hurt somebody's feeling so badly that they become crippled you know, from it. I mean, all these things are, we're all happening always at the same time. And my inner and outer life, there's a kind of integration of everything. Being all over the place, the way that you can identify yourself, it still is very difficult for me. And so my real experience of, it was very complex, you know. Nancy Grossman, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Center or experience it for the first time, great news. The center has reopened. Savor stunning architecture, sweeping views of Los Angeles, and the lush Central Garden. Check out four new exhibitions, including Photoflux on Shuttering L.A., Artists as Collectors, and Power, Justice, and Tyranny in the Middle Ages. Make free advance reservations at getty.edu. We can't wait to see you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. Welcome back. Next, I'll be joined by Stacey Lynn Waddell. She's included in three ongoing museum exhibitions, including Graphic Pole, Contemporary Prints from the Collection at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. It's on view through June 6th, but it is open only to the Duke community. A thorough virtual tour is available via a link on manpodcast.com. Waddell is also in Silent Streets, Art in the Time of the Pandemic, at the Mint Museum Uptown in Charlotte. A closing date for that one has not yet been determined. And Taking Space, Contemporary Women Artists and the Politics of Scale, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. That show will be up through September 5th. Waddell's work examines both real and imagined histories, often with materials and processes that themselves reference the past. Stacey Lynn Waddell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Key to your work is that you embed ideas in the material surface of your artworks. Why is surface so important to you? 
I think it's mainly because my engagement with materials, which is directly rooted in layering and modifying the surface of paper or canvas, is is me having a, a physical experience with the ideas that support the work. I get to really sort of have a relationship while thinking about the work, while thinking about the materials. It feels like I am really in it and a, and a part of it and leave a bit of my sort of DNA behind once the work is complete. It strikes me there's also a real metaphor within your oeuvre that in your attention to surface, you're often making a sideways glance at America's surface engagement with its own history. Absolutely. I am sort of engaging with that. I'm also using that surface as a device to attract the viewer. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking someone to create a relationship with my work maybe by asking the question, what is that material? Or maybe by sort of having questions about my sort of procedural engagement, like is it printmaking, is it drawing? How did she make that mark? And in the case of the gilded pieces, anything that's reflective optically is attractive. We It catches our attention. And so I think the surface and materials are they are not, I think, but they are my way of, of starting the conversation. A lot of your gilded works reference the icon form, the Byzantine icon form. Maybe taking your portrait, if I can call it that, of Octavia Butler as an example, what about engaging the icon form and, you know, <laughs> iconography <laughs> interests you, works for you? You know, I think it's been, I've been asking that question of myself a lot in the last year. What I've come to understand is that for much longer than I imagined or thought, I've been really interested in monuments and memorials and how you give importance to something, how you signal to others that this is something or someone they should pay attention to. It's my way of, of honoring, but it's also a way of, especially with the gilded portraits, a way of getting at a psychic or emotional or spiritual connection to something. In that context, your battle royale, a duel for, in honor of, and because, we'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com, is a portrait. It's a picture showing, in simplest terms, an old gun and a new gun facing each other in gold leaf. Like a lot of your work, it addresses America's history in ways that also include the present, that tell us to look at the present. There is a work in the Nasher's collection, the Nasher at Duke's collection, called, and it's on, on, on view in the current print show, that is not, as of this taping, open to the public, but is open to students at Duke. That work is called The Awful Conflagration of the Steamship Lexington, after Nathaniel Courier, 1840-2011. It's a work that references a scene of a steamship explosion and fire that is both a kind of a landmark event in American transportation, but also a landmark scene in American material culture and Americana. 
And so it was first an actual event, and then it was a symbol, which which uh, resonates in the present in a lot of ways today. And your work is a reorientation of of multiple disasters. What about the story of the Lexington caught your sideways glance? You know, when you think about the time in which, in this case, uh, Nathaniel Courier was operating his lithography shop, this is pre-photography. So this is early photojournalism. You have an artist that goes out and captures an event or a scene or some sort of happening, and then that art is turned into a lithograph that then can be printed in multiple fashions. You know, it can go into a newspaper, it could be sold as prints, and disseminated to lots of people. What what caught my attention about that initially was just the way in which ideas were shared, right? How do you how do you get the word out? And I'm very attracted to these kind of analog ways of information sharing, although I, you know, obviously live in a digital world, a fast-paced world. I engage in social media, but those analog ways of storytelling and information sharing are interesting interesting to me because of the 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 space between when something is documented and then when it's shared those kind of pauses in between the other thing about the courier images and then later of course when it's courier and ives uh working together is that it is considered quintessential Americana. And to look at the steamboat images in particular, when you start to think about the steamship as a symbol of progress, the steamship as a symbol of America during a time when slave labor was peak at its peak, America at a time when it was still figuring out who and what it was or she is. It's really interesting to me to look at those images from the time of a country's infancy. You know, it's a disaster image too. You know, if you if you think about like Warhol's disaster images. Oh, it's a disaster image in many ways. Let me fill in for listeners who may not be up on their steamship disaster history. <laughs> <laughs> Please. That only four passengers on the Lexington survived the explosion and subsequent fire. All were white, and they survived by floating on top of bales of cotton. We've talked about surface. Could you tell us how you made the surface of that that work and why the letter B? So I, I think of the work primarily as drawing. It all begins as a drawing. And so, you know, I make a some sort of drawing, base drawing of the image where, and this is where I can edit. I can decide to include or not include things. These works aren't necessarily copies of or direct depictions of. They're sort of the thing, all the things that I find most interesting in the piece. And in this case, the fire, this idea of a conflagration. So I start with a drawing and then I go in and I, you know, in this case, the case of this piece, I, I, make the water, you know, I I kind of do the kind of like ground of the sky and the water. And I do, you know, I, I create this in the way that you would make any mixed media work on paper, right? You think of the ground and then you build up from there. 
So sky, water, lay in the ship, then now the fire, and then all of the surface detail. And so part of this image includes both gold leaf and ink and a burnt mark, a mark made with a heated stylus that's like a pencil that I go in and I make this indelible sort of burnt mark. And it's it really... It's right right inside, on the surface of the artwork. Right on I the surface. Yeah. yeah, it looks etched. When I, when I burn into the paper with the tools that I use, it looks etched. If you were looking or were able to run your finger across the surface of that, you would feel a raised surface, like a low relief. You could... With many of these mixed media pieces on paper, you could ink it and get an impression if you were to roll it under a press. So there's something in terms of this idea of constructing an image that's very real for me, building something, building it up. But also in the building, I'm making it more real. And that doesn't necessarily mean a photographic realness, but an experiential realness for me, first the maker and then for anyone that engages with the work, even through glass or plexiglass for a work that's made on paper, in the case of the piece in the Nasher exhibition right now. And, and of course, the cotton that saved them was produced by enslaved men and women who were often themselves, metaphorically and not, singed. Right. And what about the bees? So in the case of the awful conflagration image or drawing in the show graphic pull at the Nasher, the bees are, for me, they are a kind of emphatic gesture. It takes an emphatic physical gesture to make that mark. And so it's writing. It's everything those bees stand in for any kind of text or writing or information or emotion that really standard text or informational writing is insufficient. Words, there's a place in which words cannot, they can't describe, they can't do the telling in the full and complete way or in a nuanced way. And so that's where the, the bees come from. Prior to them showing up in, in this piece, I started making this list of B words, words that start with the letter B. There's something about, in this case, this sort of B in script form, the form of the letter, it's impregnated, it's round, it's decorative with its curly cues and whatnot. And just the way also that the words that start with B, the way you say the letter B and the way air is pushed through your lips, the sound that that letter makes was all sort of something that I was thinking about in terms of how we, in a bodily way, speak and use language and share language. And that's really interesting to me. And so I sent a way to have branding irons, the same kind of branding irons that you'd use to, if you were a rancher, to brand cattle. Of course, there's a through line from that to the way in which African bodies were branded as property for slave owners. And so, you know, that's that's where that comes from, that stamping. It's a signature also. It's a signature of mine, but also how do you, you know, the question of how do you sign a work? I'm starting with a historical image 
from Courier, and I am now adding my own signature, either with that stamping or just in the way that I've, of course, reclaimed that image and represented it with my own materials and processes. So, yeah, the emphatic gesture. I mean, these works are, this work and the work that I tend to do in this vein, I, I think of it as emphatic drawing. I think of it in that way because of the kind of emotion, I hope, that the, an attraction, I hope, that the viewer has for the work. Again, as I've said before, that can be through a question or a curiosity about some sort of procedural engagement that I'm having with materials and processes. But that emphasis or that emphatic drawing also refers to the chemical reactions and transformative processes of printmaking. A lot of what I do in the work is a kind of rudimentary or even kitchen sink, if you will, printmaking process. And it's, it's something that I'm always thinking about, the multiple in this case, the multiple mark with a branding iron, but the power in that, that printmaking gives you, the, the options that printmaking allows for. It allows for a multiple. Information can be disseminated to lots of people. You can think of printmaking in terms of a way of getting around the question of scale. How does one function expansively? You can do that with printmaking if you think of individual parts that come together to make this whole. And so thinking of constructing, building, or creating something by the way of these individual modules is something that on a formal level in the studio, I play around with and I think about whether sort of directly or indirectly. And then, you know, what's also interesting to think about as well, especially in the case of this piece, is that the image that I am playing with is a lithograph. And if you want to, you know, kind of geek out a little bit and think about the way that a lithograph is made, it's a, a chemical reaction that, that is sort of, that happens, that's, that's instigated or that's, that's uh, activated on the surface of a stone. And so thinking about how to get an oil and water combination or a relationship between an oil and water or a kind of resist process to form a stable image and, and the end ultimately is also a metaphor for the way in which I work, but also the way in which you may, as the viewer, have to kind of a process that you may have to go through in your sort of as the image comes through your eye and the information you're processing through your brain, it likens itself to that in my mind, that kind of processing and, and how the procedural is a direct connection to the ideas, the stuff, right, that, that holds the image together. The, the influences or the prompts, why, how, why, are, why am I prompted to make, why am I prompted to make drawings in the way that I do. It comes by way of printmaking, writing, text. So, yeah, and just, you know, thinking too about starting with the historical image. We've, we've talked about that. Why do I come to the, or how do I come to these historic images? 
And I talked a little bit about that from the sort of art making standpoint. My, you know, what am I influenced by? What am I attracted to? And why do I choose it? But it really kind of starts well before then from a small uh, rural North Carolina farming family with a really strong oral tradition. And there is no certainty as to what my origin story is. Origin stories are very or core to who I am as a person and core to my family. And we talk a lot about origin stories so that everyone is clear down through the generations as to who your people are, what your and or where your home is. And so I'm it seems to me, and it's always been apparent to me that that's why I choose these images is because historical images in the case of, say, 19th century landscape paintings, they're origin stories, but they're flawed. They're, they've been glossed over uh, or they've just completely omitted information that is crucial. And so that's where I come in, right, with my artistic endeavors and my tools and materials, I come in to make that known or create those spaces in which you can go and find that information. I don't give everything to you as the viewer about what you should know, what was left out. But I more specifically would really like to kind of touch on a, a nerve where you intuitively get to that place. It doesn't necessarily have to be informationally, right? It can just be an intuitive thing, something that you feel in your gut that then prompts you to go and look and think and go down a particular path. And that, for me, feels more like the way in which I grew up, you know, running through the fields or helping in the garden or, you know, going down into the, the forest, right? Which, right, which today as an adult, black woman, I would think twice about, but, but it's that, that kind of organic living connection to the land, being very comfortable in spaces, in places, both natural and otherwise is something that is a part of me, but I've gotten away from. And so when I see a landscape image, it takes me back to, to that place. It, it pulls me back. And so that's another reason why these, these images are really important, you know, interesting to me, or they're, they feel very personal to me. It could be of upstate New York. It could be of really anywhere, but, but that naturalistic space is a, holds a deep well of, of connection for me. And so I continue to look at those, those spaces, continue to play with them <laughs> and make them, you know, my own or try and make them my own. Your addresses of history and representation of history include art historical standards and indeed sites far beyond the South. You have made, for example, a couple of works looking at, say, Catskill Creek, famed subject of Thomas Cole's and, and also Frederick Church's for that matter, and the landscape captured in Cole's famous oxbow at the Met, that view from Mount Holyoke, which I always, I mean, I've been writing about that painting for years and I still laugh every time I call a 930 foot hill Mount Holyoke. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, 
why do those views and works interest you and, and what have you added to them? So in the case of the works that you're speaking of, they were a commission for Art Papers magazine. And I knew that I wanted to work with landscape. I've always been interested in 19th century Hudson River School landscapes. First, by way of my interest in Robert Duncanson, the landscapes, his landscapes for me were about having a kind of access, a level of freedom as a free black man during that time to have an opportunity to go to Europe, to study, to have patrons to support the work. I look at those spaces as as a kind of opportunity, but one that is really shrouded in a lot of misery, right? And questions and darkness and violence. I mean, I can't look at a scene of Thomas Cole's and not think about the transatlantic slave trade or the sheer amount of energy from other bodies and people that it took to develop these lands. Or the, or the dispossession that was part of that. Or the dispossession that was part of it. I, those, that for me is, is embedded in the pieces that I make by that burnt mark. And that is why that, that, that mark that you can't, even if you could go in and scrape away the gold and go in and, and wash away the ink, that mark would be there. And even if the, the, the sepia singed mark was somehow pulled away, then that incised or etched place, it would still be there. And so what I've added to this particular series of tondos, these rounds, are sculptures, sculptural works that somehow look like naturalistic, you know, some in some cases might look like trees without leaves or these kind of like naturally formed earthworks. But they're in fact sculptures by Thaddeus Mosley, artist Thaddeus Mosley, who is an artist from Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh. And so I had this idea for some time about what would it be like to have these works by a living Black artist engage with these classical, bucolic spaces that are so revered as a kind of, and canonized, what would that mean? What would that do to the meaning? In my drawings, these the sculptures are much larger than they are in real life, right? They're, they extend well beyond the page in some cases. But there's, a, but there's an interplay between the privilege, right, of one artist versus a kind of real life story and a late coming, in many cases, recognition of another person by by presenting these sculpture these works within the frameworks of these uh, 19th century landscape paintings i'm i'm kind of producing a showdown a little bit in the way that you see in battle royale there is a there is a standoff there's a little there's a tension where you're asking yourself the question what is supposed to be there and and not who's who gets to occupy that space and not so those sculptures are in many ways of you know, reference to black bodies, indigenous bodies, bodies, ideas, histories, etc. 
let me fill in a couple of things. Thaddeus Mosley's sculptures in three-dimensional form aren't necessarily or maybe ever present around your works. You're representing them in two-dimensional forms within your works, which are roughly a foot and a half around. And then you reference Mosley in the titles of the work. You use his initials just as you use, say, Thomas Cole's initials in the titles of your work. And I guess as a final fill-in, Mosley is, is still alive. He's in his mid-90s now. He was not a contemporary of, of Cole's. So there are multiple levels, generations of history within those pieces. You have work in a show that's now at the Mint Museum in Charlotte, a show titled Silent Streets, Art in the Time of Pandemic. Like many museums, the, the Mint has had the good idea of looking at how artists are and have been keeping on during um, a year of precarity. And the work at the Mint consists of a wall, which you have painted red, and three flags. Flags are each made from different material, and, and they're more or less different colors. What about now led you to flags? I've been thinking about monuments and memorials for a number of years. In 2017, I spent time in New Orleans, several months at a residency at the Joan Mitchell Center and in New Orleans. And one of the things that I knew I wanted to do, I wanted to take long, slow looks at the pedestals, which had been separated from their statuary. You know, New Orleans was one of the first places to just kind of go in and remove statuary. I wanted to look at those pedestals and bases because I thought of those sites as sites of possibility. When you look at them, they're all located in central locations, public spaces. And I started thinking a lot about who gets to decide what we all collectively are represented by, who gets to decide how we're represented and what should be considered important and revered. And public iconography, right? Like who who gets to design that? And so I, I started making work about that. I was making portraits and made a, a, a portrait in particular about referencing the artist Maren Hassinger, who was also in residence there atop one of the pedestals, the one where the P.T. Beauregard statue had been removed and was thinking a lot about the look, you know, like like women and black women and black bodies as representative of something other than themselves, of representative of collect of a collective. Anyway, that brings me forward to the flags. I mean, when the curator first reached out to me, Jen Edwards first reached out to me about with the commission to invite me to, to be a, one of the commissioned artists, I thought, okay, so this is an opportunity to make a project. And I'd been thinking about flags. I'd been thinking about the kneelings at the national anthems. I'd been thinking about really wanting to be in a position where even in, in this small context, right, of a museum, of a museum exhibition, to create this iconic form, to take this iconic form, the flag, and, and, and make it new, make it mine, make it something that I could control or I could invite people to in a different way. And so these flags are hung on wall mounts 
that are very standard wall mounts or hung in a way that you might see the U.S. flag. And I wanted people to have the actual like stance in front of these flags as you would an American flag or anything of importance, because although they're hung very low, right, they're very physically accessible to people entering the galleries at the museum, they still ask you to crane your neck to look upward. And so your stance to see this thing is still one of reverence, that position that you have to take to see these pieces. You know, each of those flags for me is made of materials that are recognizable, but those are they're materials that have a history. And there I go again with this this history, you know, something that has a life, had a life prior to my intervention upon it. The red flag is representative of my grandmother. She was this amazing woman from an amazing lineage that I am really blessed to be a part of. The denim flag is is made in honor of the young black women of, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Can I, I just jump in for a second? That blue denim flag is not a single sheet of denim. It is not a single sheet of denim. It is many, many pieces of white oak cone denim. And white oak is one of the denim plants at the Cone Denim Manufacturing Plant that is historically situated. If you think about, I just I just say like Levi's and I think of uh, tell people, you know, look at the history of indigo dyeing and the Cone textile plant again in greensboro yeah let me let me fill that in for a second too cone denim's plant since the 1890s has been in greensboro north carolina if the family name sounds familiar it is indeed the cones of uh, the cone collection at the baltimore museum of art and also at the weatherspoon art museum at unc greensboro you see that name everywhere but for me it starts there, but it goes to the denim and, and its significance. It goes to the young black men and women, women in particular of SNCC, the Student Nonviol- Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which started at, in 1960 at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. My parents are went to Shaw University. They're, they, they graduated from there. Shaw University has a, a long history Uh, Black history, but it it has a long history in my family. And so when you think about these young men and women who, to show solidarity with the working men and women, they were helping to organize, they wore denim, denim being considered Negroes clothing, sharecroppers clothing. And so for me, that is, is, is right where I live in terms of that particular flag for this project, this idea of denim as being a part of the civil rights movement, as being an icon of the civil rights movement. When you look at images of Reverend Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy leaving prison, right, after being jailed in Birmingham, what are they wearing? Denim. James Foreman famously wore blue denim overalls. Look at those images, famously wore blue denim overalls. And then it, it, it's interesting. And so this, this simple, seemingly simple gesture, right, of wearing denim, 
which is something that we would we would say is iconically American, right? Jeans, denim is really powerful to me, that simple gesture. And so that's where I sort of live with that flag. That's sort of the central idea of that flag. And then the final flag, the more the more overall white colored flag is comprised of mostly 19th century silk, lace and linen handkerchiefs, some stockings, uh, lace cuffs and collars. And it's been amazing to work with that material because those pieces were deaccessioned from the Mint Museum's fashion collection. I was fortunate enough at the beginning of this project, months, many months ago, when I was making a list of the kinds of materials that I wanted to work with, I just sort of thought about lace. But in no way did I even ever think, right, that I would get to work with this kind of material. And in speaking with Jen Edwards, the the, the curator, I was I was able to to get these materials. And that was amazing to be able to just, you know, handle objects from the museum's collection, but also to just in my hand hold something that it lived through, that had been utilized through. The, that particular time period of the 19th century. And then thinking about Harriet Tubman and the silk and lace shawl that she was gifted from Queen Victoria. And then thinking about where Charlotte, the city of Charlotte, got its name. And Queen Sophia's Charlotte being related to Queen Victoria, who gifted the shawl to the great abolitionist and conductor on the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman. And Civil War spy. And Civil War spy, which is just really cool. (laughs) I mean, there are no, you know, there are no smart words that can suffice. It was just cool. But yeah, I mean, this this idea of me being interested in working with uh, starting at a place of history and in some cases, histories that aren't necessarily directly mine. What I've come to understand is that the interconnectivity of of everyone, right, of all of these things, and the kind of space that it takes to come to a more clear understanding of who and what we all are and, and, and what our contributions have been and, and, and what they haven't been, right, what they haven't been. Stacey Lynn Waddell, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.